Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, Howard. Good morning. Good afternoon. Alvidesame. Auf Wiedersehen. That's German. It means goodbye. Are you yes, done? Yes. Um, I think we did good. Okay, good. That's one of our best Thanks. takes. Bye-bye. So, I'm going to make you guess our guest. Assuming you hadn't just talked to him. And I said, how many clues would you think it would take? Hmm. I'm usually kind of slow. So, it might take 30 or 40. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. You're assuming that I would know how to give a good clue. Well, that's, Fumberg? Yeah. What the hell is Fumberg? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I already out of the bag. We have uh, an old friend of mine. And by old, I mean he's old. The uh as old as you. You know what? I don't know. The last time I saw him, we had dinner pre-COVID. So he, do, do you know who it is yet? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you talked to him. Yeah, yeah. No, I've known him for weeks. Ha. Huh? So <laughs> it's a little chilly out. Is it really? Yeah, it's a little chilly. I just went out for my standard lunch. Oh, yeah? A little sleepy. Okay. As, as tends to happen. Okay. So- on the uh, pod today, I'm going to start calling it the pod. Is that Gen Z lingo? <laughs> no. And I'm just trying to be hip for my guests. But on the pod today is a friend of mine, Ted Mertz. And Ted has been at Bloomberg way over 20 years, he'll tell us. Some people may not even know he's still there. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> he's done everything from editorial to product. He knows how to pull the magic out of the team. Like, I know how to use stock tweets and who to follow. Ted knows that on a scale that's unimaginable because he was there at the beginning when there were, like, no terminals out there. Right. hundred terminals. Fantastic. So he grew up in Madison, New Jersey, because I want to go through this on the pod. And uh, he was an exchange student. That's why you like him. He was an exchange student in Norway outside Bergen, or do you pronounce it Bergen? I say Bergen, but Bergen. yeah, Bergen in English. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like the color. That's where the color burgundy came from. Ron Burgundy. <laughs> no. And then he went to St. John's College, which is a Jewish school, and uh, in the Great Books program in Annapolis and Santa Fe. Gap year traveling to Spain. So he was doing gap years before it was cool. And has worked his first job in Mexico at an Engli- English language newspaper. He was a journalist doing all the, uh, what journalist grunt work was back I think there were only candles. There might not even have been an electricity of 1990. <laughs> so uh, without further ado, Ted, let's get him on the horn. All right. Ted! Hey, Howard, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Who's running Bloomberg if you're on this podcast? <laughs> I think Mike Bloomberg is running Bloomberg. He's back! He's, he is back, yeah. I was kind of hoping you would just pull him in from the meeting next door to just come on the podcast, but... Uh, I don't think I'd have anything to say to him. The, uh, so I'm excited to have you on. I mean, you, you were at the center of so much in news and information. So give me a little bit of an origin story, how you sure. ended up and, and your first role at Bloomberg. So I, um, when I finished college, I thought I wanted to be either a lawyer or a journalist. Huh. And so I, I worked for a summer in a law firm. And then I took a year off after college and I went and worked at a newspaper in Mexico City. 
And I got the job because I knew a friend of mine had been working down there. He told me about it. And uh, my thought at the time was the way to break into journalism was either you go to journalism school um, and you get and get the credentials, or you work at a small paper in the U.S., or you go abroad and work at an English language paper somewhere. So I went to the library. I went through all the books and I looked up all the English language papers. And there were papers at the time in like Buenos Aires and Tehran and Tokyo. And I went to, I, I saw one in Mexico City. So I wrote them a letter and I said, I want to come work for you. And they said, fine. And I went down and got the job and started making $70 a week, uh, writing in English, but reporting in Spanish. Um, and it was great. It was, um, I got there in 1989 right at the time where Mexico was starting to really transform economically. Huh. And they had, just, they had just proposed the free trade agreement. They had just uh, announced they were going to privatize the banks and a lot of other companies. So there was a lot of economic things going on. And I was, um, you know, started as a business reporter. And um, it was fantastic. I, you know, I got to interview every time a big American CEO came down, like John Reed was running Citibank uh, or Citigroup at the time. And so I got to interview him and um, covered the president, who is um, Carlinos de Cortari, and so forth. So I had great stories and just a great time. And and I realized at that moment, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be a journalist. And it just was so much fun, so much fun every day. Every day was totally different and, and just completely exciting. Where does this moment fit in? Like you've interviewed a lot of people. You mean being interviewed? Yeah, like by this, Howard. By you? Yeah. That's like, uh, like it never happens. I am always the one I am always the one doing the interviewing. I am always the one moderating the the panels and so forth. So it's very rare. In nineteen ninety, so how many terminals were out there? So I I came I moved to New York in the fall of nineteen ninety and I heard from a friend that there's this new news organization called Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. And it was started by a guy named Matt Winkler, who had been at the Wall Street Journal. Oh, it wasn't started so, by Mike? Well, Mike, I mean, Mike owned the company. Was, right. Mike started it. But, uh, you know, the origin story is interesting and kind of a good corporate dynamic story, which was Mike started the company in 1981. And for nine years, it was, you know, it provided data and analytics. And there was some news as a component, but the news was from Dow Jones. And he had licensed that news. And what happened is as Bloomberg continued to grow, a couple things happened. One, Mike didn't want to continue to pay for that uh, news on the terminal. And Dow Jones had a competing product called Tellerate, which mm. was really the Bloomberg of its day. You know, it, mm -hmm. was, it was the system you went to for bond prices and things. So um, Mike called Matt and they had lunch at a Japanese restaurant. And Mike said, you know, what does it take to get into the, the news business? And Matt uh, started, you know, he started that year. That was, I think, like in March or April of 1990. And I joined, I was about, I was number 15 and we hired, you know, it was about 15, 20 people in the first year. And um, we sat in a tiny room and um, it just was really, uh, you know, very much kind of a startup feel before startups for startups. But, um, you know, some of the things I did, Howard, in that first job kind of um, are indicative of the scrappiness of Bloomberg's culture at the time. And one of the things was I would get up at 3, 3.30 in the morning and I would go to the wholesaler of newspapers and I'd buy a stack of newspapers like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and I would take them to the office and me and two other guys would go through them and write short summaries of what was in the paper. 
And the genius of this is that we would then publish them on the wire. You could trade off that in London before those publications had even hit the streets in New York. You know, they weren't, there was no internet back then. So people were trading off what was in the journal before the journal had been available. Kids today don't appreciate their group chat. That's right. Well, I mean, uh, in the 90s, late 90s, people would trade off 15-minute delayed Yahoo message board news. Yeah. So how many terminals do you think there were when you started? I think there were about 9,000 when I started. What was the price? You know, I I don't know the price. The price is interesting and the price... um, Whatever price Mike said in the in the beginning has basically been the price, um, and they, we do a uh, uh, an increase every two years. Got it. You know, we do a, an inflation increase, but it's a steady inflation increase. It's not like ramped up or anything. You know, it's a pretty incredible business model when you think about that. Oh there was God. no sudden gap at all. Yeah. But we have there's about three hundred thirty thousand terminals now. So I'm going to do the math in my head. Three hundred thirty thousand terminals. Is U.S. the biggest market? Yeah, yeah. The U.S., London, and then, you know, Hong Kong, Japan. Is China a market or no? Yeah, no, China is a market. We have terminals in China. Do they pay? Yeah, yeah. You they think pay. they pay? I'm not on the, the, the billing <laughs> side, but... Uh, the Chinese never pay. So, <laughs> okay, I don't know. So, is the biggest story that you've ever covered COVID or 9-11? COVID is the biggest story uh, the world has seen indefinitely in my lifetime. Um, and I thought about this a lot and I've used some of the, the analytics we may talk about later, but um, there's just never been a story like it. And one of the things people don't quite recognize about news is, you know, when people think about stock prices and they have a kind of move mm-hmm. and, you know, people do um, technicals on them and so forth, you could probably do the same on the coverage of news events. News events are very, very predictable. They kind of come and they spike up and then they spike down and they're kind of over. And you can chart this on anything. And even big stories like the election or impeachment follow a similar trajectory. Uh Um, What's different about COVID is the magnitude. So first, the magnitude and second, the duration. Duration is the killer. I mean, honestly, when you think back, you probably have to go back to World War II to have an event that was so global so sustained and so large. I mean, we think about things like the economic crisis of 2008 being a big deal, but that wasn't global in the same way. And it wasn't as sustained, you know, the the story itself. So it's really, really unlike anything we've ever seen. So sitting at the heart of it, what's your take today about when we come out of it? Because you read so much and you see so much data. Is there any take that you have that you think is different? You know, if you look at if you look at the chart of coverage, we are down about the where we were in March or something like. So we're still it's still high or February. We're about where we were in February. I mean, it's still it's kind of plateaued, honestly. And it is where we were in July. We've kind of remained there. I think it could. I mean, I think it's probably another six months before we're really, uh, you know, and after the vaccine. Yeah. Okay. So. And and you managed the coverage of 9-11. So walk me through that. So that was, that's, you know, one of the kind of most exciting and terrible days ever, you know. But the, the terrible part was I was in the newsroom. I was a bureau chief in New York. And, and the office was downtown, the newsroom, wasn't it? No, no. The office was at um, 59th Street. Okay. So it was still so up we're at 59th it was uptown, Street. Okay. You know, we, we got word that there was a plane that had hit uh, the, the trade towers, turned on the television. And so we all kind of watched in real time uh, the second plane hit. 
And I can remember standing over the shoulders of the stock market editor and sending the headline on it. And then, um, you know, the terrible part was you didn't, people forget this, but we didn't know the towers were going to come down. So I dispatched a half a dozen reporters to go down to the, the site and, and report on it. And then when the towers came down and all, all cell phone connections came down, you know, you had no idea what was going on. You didn't know what happened to, to the people. And, um, and in fact, Bloom, Bloomberg lost three people in the, in the attack who had been working just in the building. They weren't, they weren't news reporters, but, uh, but, you know, it's just a great tragedy. It's just the thing. The other thing I remember about that day is, you know, everybody talks about how blue, beautiful it was, blue sky, but how, um, uh, when you looked out the window, all the people walking north, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was no public transportation. So everybody just had to walk from downtown back uptown and then people just left the city and it was just empty. You know, you no, no cars. Do you miss being in news? Cause now you moved to product for 13 years. I want to talk about the business yeah. and, and the entrepreneurship of it. So, so was that a big change? Did you want to move to product? It was a really big change. Um, and I wanted to, I had been a journalist for 18 years and you know, it was really a seven day a week thing. You would just get calls all the time. So that was, it was draining. I mean, I loved it. I loved it. But um, I had also done a lot of what I felt I could do. That was the second thing is, I mean, I had handled big stories. I had managed big groups of people. And the third thing is I was always really interested in the technology. And one of the things, even from the beginning, I would always be thinking about how we could use technology to do a better job covering stories. And um, one of the things that I remember when I came into journalism was that in the early 90s, you know, uh, financial journalism was really just in its infancy still. And people would talk about the stock market in a very, very vague way. They would say, you know, stocks rallied today, you know. And one of the things we realized at Bloomberg was we could use the technology to tell you that it was the biggest one-day gain in three months. You know, we could apply a tremendous amount of precision. You could break down that gain the stock market was up 2%, you could say, these are the sectors that drove it. And, you know, these are the sectors that went down. And so there was a lot of uh, precision we brought to the coverage. And so I was always interested in, in doing more with that. And that's kind of was one of the big draws for me to move from the editorial side into the product side. And so at the beginning, because you, you, you said earlier, Mike, like one of the original entrepreneurs like Phil Knight, what were meetings like? Was he always confident and sure? What, what were meetings like at the beginning with him? So um, one of the things I was fortunate to do is um, I was in the newsroom. There weren't that many people. And every year back in the day, Mike would have meetings with key departments, news being one, sales being another. And I can remember uh, have these things where uh, there'd be a, a you know good-sized room. And I remember one particularly in the early 90s where we gathered a bunch of people. We were all sitting in chairs. It was kind of like... Um, it was kind of like an auditorium room, but not not like a movie theater auditorium, you know, just flat. And people were just sitting all around the room everywhere. And Mike came in and was sitting down and he opened the meeting with just a question of like, how do we how do we do better? And it was just, you know, so interesting. And then people could just anybody just talked, you know, and said, oh, this is our problem and that's our problem. And, and um, one of the things that happened in that meeting was somebody raised the question that our customers don't always know how to find things on the on the machine, you know, and they don't know how to communicate with us. And this is a long time ago, you know, and Mike said, like literally on the spot, he said, what if I put a button on the keyboard that says help and you hit that twice and it pops up a box and you get a person. 
what we now know, like instant message person. Right. Like I still don't think enough companies doing it. It was like a 30 second kind of boom. And we're like, okay. And then they, and they built that. And I always thought like of all this, I have so much to talk about Twitter because I, mean, I know you'll be bored, but I, I love talking about you with it. I talking about Twitter with you and news and social media. So, and then the future, but when we started stock tweets, I'm like, can we put a fucking phone number on the site? Like no one knows how to use Twitter. So they're never going to know how to use stock tweets, right? Like, no one wanted to do that. I always said if Twitter just had a thousand people in a room answering phones, telling people how to use Twitter and who to follow, they would have saved five years, but they didn't want to do the hard work of doing that. So Mike just basically still to this day, right? It's all about like, let people have someone to talk to, to walk them through some of the stuff. It's probably the most important thing that Bloomberg ever did. I mean, I think one of the things when you ask people about Bloomberg, why, you know, about the company, they'll talk about the service right away and you can call you know, 24 hours a day and get a human very quickly. You can instant message, you can message. And, um, you know, you get somebody in your language who's answering the question. It's a very high touch, but incredible service. And uh, I mean, that's been there. It's been like that for so long, you know. So you, you go to product 2007, you're still doing that now. That's how I met mm -hmm. you. I called on you, yeah. you called on us because what? your job even being the king of the castle is to know what's going on around you. And I think that's what made Bloomberg special. You weren't waiting for the, you, you had to protect the moat. This is what I, my favorite conversation is because I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in the beginning when you started to take Twitter seriously. We talk about it a lot, you and I, yeah. when we talk, cause I'm like, to me, when I saw Twitter, my first instinct was Twitter's Bloomberg. Yeah. It doesn't have the data and doesn't have the charting yet, but like everybody's connected how disruptive that would be to Bloomberg. So when did Bloomberg start taking it seriously and where is it today? So Twitter is one of the most interesting things we did here, but I should give you a little bit of background is we decided in like 2009 that we really wanted to have a lot more content available to our clients. And I think we were early doing this. I mean, we had Bloomberg News, but we wanted to have direct feeds in from big publications like the New York Times and so forth. And this is, this is kind of what led me to Twitter. But the first thing we did was we started calling major news organizations like the Times, the Washington Post and others. And we said, we want to buy a feed of your mm. content and we want to put it on the Bloomberg terminal. And literally in the beginning, when we called the Times, they were like, why do you want to do that? Like, that makes no sense <laughs> uh -huh. because we're, they were very much thinking in a consumer model of having content on the internet and then clicks. You know, they wanted to get clicks. And we said, well, you know, when we pipe it in and we host it, the delivery is much more reliable and faster. And a lot of other organizations have realized this later, like Facebook and others. But so we first went and I first called the New York Times and say, I want to buy a feed of your content. They probably so, didn't even have one. They, they didn't have a feed. We What was amazing was we were basically making a market in content that didn't exist. There was wow. no price. We would just say, we'll pay you this. And they were they, they didn't know what to how to value it either because they had no other customers doing this. That's the genius of Bloomberg, you know, because they don't imagine how important it is to you. Well, the Bloomberg client is not, is somewhat agnostic to where the information comes from. If we can get it to them by, you know, by a ticker, and they can look up news on a particular company, and it's there from the New York Times, they're delighted. They don't have to then go to the website and go all over the place. So that early impulse to sort of aggregate information yep. started with like 
the Times and the Post, and um, is now we're doing like over 120 publications like that. But that's kind of what got us in the mindset of of thinking about content and the value of content and how you could bring it in real time. And then what happened is I was uh, I was in London visiting your office. And one of the sales reps came to me and said, I've got a problem with a major hedge fund. It's one of the bigger hedge funds in London. Yeah. We went over there and we met with the chief risk officer and the chief technology officer. And they said, here's our problem. Our traders are trading off Twitter on their phones. Knew this. And it was amazing. And so I this is in 2010. Yeah. So we go, they walk out on the trading floor and people have their phones propped up against their screen. So their screens are like all Bloomberg but then they've got their phone and they're looking at Twitter. And, you know, they didn't know how to solve that, but the, the chief risk officer viewed it as a major problem and a major potential liability if they started tweeting. Oh, uh, they were more worried about it from the tweeting perspective. Yeah, they were more worried that their, their traders were going to tweet. That's right. Uh, but the traders were going to do what they're going to do and they wanted to get the information. So they said, can you solve this? Can you do something? And this, and this is the part that's amazing, Harris. I come back, I call Twitter. I say, I want to buy. A <laughs> was it Conniptan or was it just and, Twitter? Oh, I called Twitter directly. Right. And So what do you do? Uh, you looked up Bluebird? Well, how do you even call Twitter yeah. directly? <laughs> I looked them up in the phone book and I just started <laughs> calling them. On them. Bloomberg. They, they didn't call me back for an unbelievable amount of time. Of course they didn't. They didn't call me back. I, I mean, know. it took maybe six months to connect. We connect and then they say, oh, we don't sell. We don't do that. Of course we, they don't. We've licensed that to, um, there were two providers at that time. Ginnip was one and Datasift Data was, was the other. Yeah. So we did deals with both. We duplicated and we bought Genius. the same stuff from both of them yeah. to have a bit of more reliability or, and they, they were slightly different in what they offered. Sure. So we set up the system and then um, that's when Twitter started to realize that data sales could be an opportunity and that they weren't just about the consumer market. And they acquired uh, Gnip, and they folded it in, and they became that became the the arm that sold data and tried to build that business out. Yeah, I'm so good then, friends with the Judd, who was one of the founders of, mm -hmm. of Gnip, so I just know this history. And I used to yeah. talk about. I was on both sides of the table as Stockton. I was mad at everybody because I said, if everybody could just listen to me, we could all make uh -huh. more money, including Howie Linson. Instead, everybody's right. a billionaire, right. and I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> no, so so what what. What, I don't know what it was like from their side, but they. what I do know is they made the acquisition. Yes, smart. And we called them right away and we're like, what does this acquisition mean, you know, for, for our deal? Because they could have messed with you. They, they were in a power position before you got in there. They didn't know they were in a power position. Well, we, you know, they basically canceled the rights for Ganip to redistribute hmm. when they made the acquisition. So effectively, we had to then redo the deal with Twitter itself. Correct. Okay. So we did that. And um, that was interesting. I mean, um, I mean, one of the awakenings there, and it's both an opportunity and a challenge with Twitter, is you think of, I think of Twitter as a giant warehouse where there's amazingly interesting stuff in there, mm -hmm. but it's, you have no idea where it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay, no idea. And so when we first did that deal, we kind of naively said to them, can you help us like tell us what's what in the warehouse? You know, what do you got? Mm -hmm. There's 500 million tweets. You know, which ones are financial? And that's the thing that I think people don't quite always understand about Twitter, but they can't do that. They don't, they have never built that out. And so. But they could have that, had a strategy. So I don't want to cause any problems, but. It's, it's, it is what it is. They, they have yeah. a different market, but what it meant for us then is that we effectively put a lot of resources into building that. 
So um, we allocated a lot of engineers to work on a classification system for Twitter. Yeah. And so that's what I think part of the reason it's been really a good partnership in the end because Twitter does provide amazing content. What we do is we use, um, you know, AI programs to read it and to classify it about industries and companies and topics. And, mm-hmm. you know, the challenge is you may have a tweet that's about oil, but it doesn't say oil. Yeah, contextually, you know, it's, it just it's, doesn't. Yeah, it says WTI or something. And mm-hmm. so you have to know that. And uh, we spent a lot of time doing that. And that's what's made it accessible on, on you know, via Bloomberg Terminal. And then we've also gotten into a business where we sell a, um, a low latency, like a black box feed of tweets as well. So yeah. some of the training firms buy that as well. And it, without the tagging, that doesn't, that's not really a good solution for them. So. Well, I mean, when I found out that was your deal, that's when I had like mucho respect. That's when I was like, ooh, this guy's nine moves ahead. You know, Bloomberg has smart people. You're nine moves ahead of everybody. That I really wanted to be a fly on that wall. Because in my world, and just walk me through this, because in my world as, as a stock twits entrepreneur and founder, I'm like, man, the one company Twitter should not sell the data to. And actually just put give you the big Heisman every time you call, like actually not answer the phone, is Bloomberg. So were you worried when they weren't calling you? We didn't have a lot of, we didn't have a relationship before with them. So I didn't really know what was going on, like why they wouldn't. But I, but you have to go back a few years because the feed business, selling information was just not the same, you know, 10 years ago as it is today. People didn't think of it the same way. But I so, did. So, so walk me through this example and tell me if I'm crazy. So you know what you know, but you just put on your existential hat for me for just, and I hope I'm wrong, but and, and if I'm right, I'm just going to be more miserable. But um, and you, you know that's hard to do, but I will be. The uh, don't laugh, Canute. So, <laughs> so you're you're running Twitter, and yeah. yeah, it's unfair. You know what you know about Bloomer because you work there, but they recruit you to run Twitter and say I, we don't know what to do here. Would you sell the feed to the person that is now you on the other side? That's a hard question. I, I mean, I know I think, that's why I'm a podcaster. I ask yeah, hard questions. Yeah, um, I think when when Twitter sold the feed to Bloomberg, one of the things it did was also raise consciousness and awareness on the street of the value of that information. Very diplomatic answer, sir. It did. I mean, so I think the other thing is this: there, there's a business to be had in selling social information feeds. But you do have to put investment into it. So it's a question of whether you want to invest the time in the classification, the tagging, the, the cleaning up the feed. This sort of like going back to the analogy, when you go into the warehouse, it's organized so you know where everything is. And that takes uh, investment. And, you know, those kinds of things depend on what other opportunities you have. So I don't know that it's a definite yes or no. It makes me feel less miserable. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it, it should you. because... I think it's uh, it does require a lot of investment to be able to monetize that. And how has it changed working with Twitter? Or do you have you passed that on? How has it changed working with Twitter? No, we just um, we renegotiated our deal um, earlier this year, and it was great. I mean, I think we have a really good relationship with. Do you them have now. a phone number? Do you have Jack's phone number? <laughs> no, no, I have it. We do have, you want it? We we have a, we have a great relationship with them now, and in fact. One of the things we've been talking about with them is, you know, we're interested, some of our data scientists are interested in doing research on tweets. And they're excited that we do that because, 
it provides, it will likely point to even more value that you can find in social media. So we've got a big uh, AI team and that's, that's a good example where we're excited to do that. They're excited to do that. And, um, you know, we're really just, we talk a lot more. Awesome. We ever did. That it's, makes me feel good because it's an important know. product and Bloomberg seems to understand it because you went and did those deals. With, you seem to understand it better than anybody. So, I mean, that would be like, if I was going to work for somebody, it would be you because you, you get it like in this, in this product meets financial space. Who? Well, I'll tell you, right. Howard, the other thing we're doing. Do you, are you, are, are you up year? for some? I got a lot more questions. So are you up for some more questions? Or yeah, okay, yeah. So keep sure, going. So sure. I interrupted you, but you were saying. No, I was just going to point out because I don't know if you know this. Um, so Twitter was the big social media integration we did, but this year we also added posts from Facebook and um, YouTube, mm-hmm. and we're you know looking at Reddit as an example. And are you underpaying stocks or overpaying? I won't tell Rishi. What, what do you think? Definitely overpaying. Okay. Overpaying. <laughs> I had to ask that. Can you buy that line? Yeah, sure. Why not? I'm glad I'm, you know, I'm stock to his owner. Do we have a, do we have a boo sound? No, we don't. Yeah. I, he's a diplomat. He's saying they're overpaying for stock to today. When's our contract up? Let me get Rishi on the line. We'll negotiate live <laughs> on air. So, so Reddit, obviously. So the way I look at the real world, tell me if I'm wrong, because you, you get this more than me. And you're kind of a reading geek and, and a writing geek. And, and, and I have to say, Ted, because I, I do get a lot of uh, compliments, but there's two people that have complimented me on my blog since I started, I don't know, 15 years ago. The first was, was um, Henry Blodgett. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And to me, it's like, I, don't, I wasn't a Henry fan. Like, you know, eat toys, whatever. Like, you know, remember, like he was like the villain. Right, like the analyst uh, that they blamed uh, the bubble on, you know, for for putting strong yeah, buys yeah. on stuff. Remember Henry? Yeah. And so he's buried from the industry. I start Wall Strip. He just sends me a note, you know. Oh man, I've never seen something, you know, blow up like you you guys are doing. And coming from Henry, who was a writer and an analyst, I was like, whoa. And I immediately yeah. let my guard down. I ended up investing in Ali Insider, so that email to me made me a lot of money and you know changed how I thought about how it was how I was creating. And then you reading my blog is great. Just getting a note from you saying you like what I write. Yeah. So what is it? Uh, well, the first thing is your consistency. It's incredible, Howard. Nobody writes every day, you know? You, you, you show up every day. It's amazing. Um, I think there's a lot of creativity and you just, uh, you mix it up. It's not like you mail it in. And I, and I think the other big thing with your writing in the past couple of I don't know, the past year, you've also gotten more personal, which I think has been good. You know, um, your son's golfing more often in there. And there's just a lot, you know, you're, you, I think, I don't know if it happened when you got sick last year, but it just, it just feels like you brought more, you bring more yourself into the, into the writing. So it seems more authentic. It seems more real, you know? All right. So just keep it going, right? Like whenever I hear from you, I'm like, okay, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. That's true. That's true. So, Today, I look at the real time where I go, because I don't use Reddit and I know I should, but I'm not really a news junkie and I don't like false signal. And I think Reddit's the earliest. So if you were going to try and predict the future, you must read Reddit in some way. But with that comes, you know, it's the three, it's the three bears, too hot, too cold, to whatever the three bears were, right? Like with Reddit yeah. comes a lot of like nuttiness. Yeah. Then there's Twitter which is real time. 
it's nutty, it's raw, there's misinformation, but it's real time. Like if you know how to read it, it is the market, right? So yeah. that's why I thought it was so important for, that's why I thought that the seminal moment for Twitter and for Bloomberg is the deal you guys did. So forget who, who I, I think you got the upper hand, but whatever, you diplomatically said they didn't. The shock to say that the traders did not demand that you have read it sooner. No, no, but you know, when we added Twitter, no one was asking for it, except, I mean, as I said, I went you to this that one hedge fund. fund. I can't believe it was just one guy. It's a one hedge fund, but I'm gonna tell you, when I came back and talked about it internally at Bloomberg with the sales force and generally with customers, the perception in 2010 was that Twitter was, you know, just people talking about the breakfast and, you know, not, not that interesting. Right. There really was not a groundswell of interest in this. And I don't know if you recall, but it was not until two or three years later that the SEC approved sort of Twitter for um, financial disclosure. Huh. And so that was kind of like the, um, the big bell that everybody heard. When that went down, people were like, oh, okay, I've got to take this seriously. But we, we were, were a few years ahead of that. And in fact, again, most of our customers were not interested in it. Um, they just saw it as a lot of noise. But I think that goes back to the key thing with this stuff is there's, we're, we're going into a world where, you know, the media used to be a small number of media publications with each story, very few stories, but high value. And we've it, gone in the other direction where there's an enormous amount of content, enormous amount of information. And there are some important things, but it's more needle in a haystack. You have to know what you're looking for. And it's hard to find some of that stuff, you know, so that's, that's a big difference. I, I was looking at, uh, you know, they had the story where there was an assassination in Iran hmm. and the Iranians commented on the assassination on Twitter. Wow. So they used Twitter, the Revolutionary Guard tweet to talk about the assassination, which is kind of mind blowing in itself. But the guy who tweeted has about 4,000 followers. So his information is fantastic, but you'd have to know who he is. You know, you need to read Farsi and you need to follow him. So I think there's an, the thing about Twitter right now and Reddit is there's still an enormous opportunity for people with domain expertise who know like who's important Correct. or what's, what's there's important. so much alpha out there right now. But you have to know like who to follow. Or how to read um, the data. Or right? how to read it, how to read it. So I think that's that's kind of one of the things I think when I think about Reddit, it's like, yeah, it's 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 like the warehouse, but it's even worse. But Correct. you have to find which parts of it are interesting, and then you're going to have to figure out a way to scrub that and make it presentable. So you love this. I know because you send me stuff during the day, and I'm like, whoa, Ted's sending me stuff. This probably could move markets if anybody cared. The uh, And it's not like inside information. It's just the way you, you look at data just, differently than most. But we see that all the time. There's tweet. There's things that come out. There's no question if something does come out on Twitter that the market doesn't really move until it's picked up by the mainstream media. It just doesn't. Like that. That's a validation of it, you know. And it's also it also hits a critical mass. So tell me this, because I I believe I have an edge, but I don't know how to quantify it. So at twelve oh one, I get the numbers from stock twits, and mm -hmm. I'm sure you've figured out how to do this too, you animal. But like forgetting that for the moment, because we're jacking up your fees after this call, but uh, depending on your answer here. So at 12.01, I get the data. I'm, it's the most exciting moment of my day. <laughs> I know I'm a loser, but uh, I just feel like I can see the future. 
And look, yeah. obviously I can see yeah. the past, but I feel like I don't know anybody's names. I don't know. And I, I didn't. Yeah. And yeah. by the way, it took years, but now that there's, okay. and when there's heavy growth or, or crazy stuff going on, I, I discount them more. But the way okay. I look at the data every night after this many years, yes. I, I feel yeah. like I see you the future. See Is that possible? Yes. Yes. And they're, you're kind of hitting on so two not big insane. things. No, but there, there's two big things, Howard. The first is that we're at this weird moment where there's so much information and data that pe- people can't find what's important or they can't focus on what's important. Correct. So let, let me tackle that one first. So then I'm going to go to the second one. The first one, the example of that is COVID. Okay, COVID, we did an, an analysis of like when the COVID story broke. Now, Again, I'm, it's arguable, but I'm going to tell you the COVID story is the biggest news event in our lifetime, okay? That broke on December 31st at 9.19 a.m. in Beijing December. when a Chinese news organization huh. posted a story on the wire, and they posted it in Chinese, and a Bloomberg editor saw it and pushed a button and automatically translated it into English. And the English headline, which came out five minutes later, was Wuhan Unexplained Pneumonia has been isolated and the test results will be announced. But what would that mean to anybody? That's right. Well, wait wait a minute. Okay. But the editor at Bloomberg had covered SARS 20 years earlier and said, this sounds like SARS. Wow. And so with, by the end of the day, we had a full story talking about SARS in the next six days. We had no one probably read that story. This is where I'm going. We, okay, we, had, we had 12 stories in the next six days. Correct. And six days later, the New York Times and the Washington Post had that story. Now, quick question. When you write a story about China, do you get hungry in 20 minutes? Or is it just when you eat the I food? Hungry. No, I don't know. <laughs> but it's just, I'm just saying it's the, 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 the information was there. Correct. But there's so, there's so much going on and there's so many other things. It wasn't like this was uncovered. This was like very heavily covered. I mean, even Fox but, News, we're, we're, they're showing yeah. people build a hospital in January and we were just watching it, not yeah. reacting that's to right. it. That's right. But, you know, some people reacted. Most people did not react. So that's I think that's one thing that's going on. The other thing which speaks to your Stockwitz example is that my, my thesis is that companies are starting to lose control of the narrative. And what I mean by that is that you can see a flow when you look at Stockwitz it's like the equivalent of like looking at Google search. Yes. You know, where you can see interest in patterns. Everybody's tweeting about a particular tiny company that, but, but the only people who can see that are the people who have access to stock twits and maybe some analytics on top of it to sort of show that this is trending. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and if you, you know, if you have the expertise to look at it every day, you start to know this is really going to move. And the same thing is true. With, I mean, this goes to like, if you could see Google search, if you could see. And in a way, they've done such a great job, like Google Trends, in a way you can do it, which is what makes Google Google. They at least you, allow you to turn it inside out at some level, which we have not right. done a great job of doing, but, and nor has Twitter, but that's the, that's the holy grail. But a lot of that stuff hasn't been structured and ever really monetized or sold. You know, it hasn't been organized in a, in a way. Correct. And it's fascinating. You think about it, like people still trade off the non-farm payroll. That's still a huge event, right? Hmm. Where you would think if you could get, you know, geolocation data in real time that told you the state of the economy or the state of different industries, you know, that would be much, that's like outside the company. You know what I mean? It's something that's coming to you directly. There's a great example that Foursquare sites where they look at the foot traffic into an Apple store. I knew they had real and good data. Have you seen this? And they, they look at it like every time Apple releases a new phone, 
they build a model that sort of calculates out how many iPhones they're going to sell based on the fact that, you know, this number of people were in the store. And that's the kind of thing you're going to see some more of where there's all kinds of data patterns. I know. I used to, to I used to bug Dennis in like 2008. I go, oh, I used to say, please just release basic trends. I know you're growing fast and the data doesn't really mean anything, but if I know how many people are checking into Chipotle's, like the hedge funds would go bananas for that piece of data. Right. But, but I'll tell you, Right now, most of that data is owned by companies that that's not their main business. Their, their oh, business no, is not for data. And it's not structured and it's not accessible and it's not on Bloomberg. And, you know, so there's, it's, it's got a ways to go. But I think, I think you're absolutely right that that's kind of where we're headed. Got a couple questions. I got a thousand questions, but I'm going to try and go quickly because I've kept you long enough. Uh, do you buy stocks or no? You just avoid it. No, okay. I don't. I don't buy any stocks. If you could buy a stock, do are you <laughs> bullish on Twitter? Not price, whatever. Are you bullish on Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I, I just did a deal with them, and I'm absolutely think that there's amazing. Oh, I'm shorting it. If you did a deal, there. I got screwed. Yeah. No, okay. So you no, did a deal with. Great. I think they're great. I think yeah. there's a lot yet that's you're going to see out of there. Yeah, me too. I'm long Twitter at the moment. Jack be damned. But Howard, if you look back historically, news was disseminated by two press release agencies. Yes. Business Wire and PR Newswire. And so yeah. companies would give their press releases to these. I know. To distribute them. So what happened after the SEC decision was that companies could go directly to Twitter and tweet it. And so you save thousands of dollars. But Twitter could have turned that into a multi-billion dollar business. I mean, I guess it's possible. But I, but I think the, the driving force for Twitter becoming essentially where news is announced yeah, by companies, yeah. I think, is, is we're headed. We're, we continue on that path. No, no. I've armchair quarterback to death. OK, so we're in agreement there. Uh, the Netflix model of news. Like, so where's news going for Bloomberg? Like, it's still your passion. You still have yeah. to go cut these deals. Where are we going? So, I mean, I, I, I use Netflix as an example to explain because a lot of people think the Bloomberg terminal just has Bloomberg news. And in fact, it's more like Netflix where we have our own news, which we think is fantastic. And then we also have licensed content from all these other you know, partners like Twitter and we have web scraping and so forth. So, I mean, I think that that aggregation model is uh, still where we want to go. You know, I mean, I think you're, you're basically putting that content in front of people so that they have the news they need about a particular company when they need it. And I think that's, that's happening. I, I think the big things that people don't appreciate when they think of content, you know, when I grew up, I read the New York Times. Now I read the New York Times and the Wall, the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and Politico. I read online, but I don't read um, in other languages. I'm not reading in Russian or Spanish or, um, you know, so forth. And so I think one of the one of the big trends we see is using machine translation to unlock the value you see in, in non-English content. You know, the financial markets are largely in English, but if you have content in Russian about the oil industry uh, published by Interfax and you could access that in real time in English, then, you know, that's game changing. And as we, as we get more global, you're going to just see more of that. So I think that's one of the big uh, trends that people aren't appreciating. The, the, the extension of content into social, other social media areas, the ability to automatically translate so you're getting you know, non-English content. In the content arena, that's where we see kind of the biggest opportunity. You shared a number with me that blew my mind because I'm like, I make fun of the fact. So I say that the markets are the language that people should know going forward. You know, when, we, when I was a kid, oh, you got to learn Spanish, you got to learn Chinese, you know, and here we are. The technology industry is basically English. Coding is basically English. 
and entrepreneurship it's out of you know it, it, you come to the United States and, and that may change now but I, I was reading a data point that you shared with me that 40 percent of uh, the content that we carry is not in English yeah that's interesting but you think about it I mean if you were I mean the opportunity is Apple has a lot of production in Taiwan and China there's going to be media coverage in Taiwan in Chinese about Apple's manufacturing capability. Mm-hmm. So you want to be able to seamlessly read and absorb that information just like you would if it were in your local paper. Mm-hmm. And right now, there's a, there's still a huge arbitrage there where effectively the locals or the Chinese speaker can read it and then convey the information. So, I mean, I think that unlocks, it's just going to change. I mean, like 10 years from now, we'll look back and, I mean, if you really care about, you know, I don't know, a particular company and that company's based in another country, you're going to figure out who the smartest reporter is and the best content is about that. And what about- That's, the, just, that's just something we just don't even think about now. How do you feel about Robin Hood and retail in this era? I think it's fascinating. I mean, or do you, you, the, do you take it seriously or- cause No, I, you were the one, you were the one who, who turned me on to it. The first thing I thought that when you explained it to me that was very interesting was the social aspect. The way you can, you know, trade and sort of share- your record with other people and, you know, gamify it a bit. I thought mm-hmm. that was fascinating. And then just the ease of setting it up, you know, it just clearly was going to do well, I thought, with younger people. Yeah. So, And so you're bullish on that whole, you want your kids to invest and you you like the whole. Yeah, I, I want my kids to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't do that for work reasons, but yeah, I think people should be doing that. So they kick you out tomorrow because of this podcast. Yeah, probably. Would you pay for Bloomberg? Oh, I don't know. It depends what I'd be doing, you know. <laughs> That's a no. That's cool. I, I love I love my job. My, my job is great. You love your job. You pick up the phone. I talk to you whenever I want. Sending me stuff after 27 years. It's amazing. Yeah, well, I try to send you the Robin Hood articles, and I try to send you- uh, Just You're trying to get under my skin. So I, so I, I try to send you the SPACs articles. You send me the Robin Hood article <laughs> and say, we got to negotiate. You're trying to get inside <laughs> my head. The- uh, no, but I, wait, but the Robin Hood thing is we, the, we did talk about this because when that story first came out about Robin Hood and they had, they were releasing or somebody else was like putting out their trading, like the overall oh, yeah, Robin track or whatever. Robin track. Yeah. yeah. I knew that was going to end and, badly. R- right. Right. I did. <laughs> but when I saw that, I called you and I said, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. That's the kind of thing where um, people want more analytics like that to know where to look. Oh, They're yeah, looking like, for, you know, the way we see it is the signal has traditionally come from volume and price. Correct. And people are now looking for non-traditional signal. And news is just one possible component in there. Like, is coverage, go, you know, is there a lot more articles or fewer articles? Or, you know, that's an example of a non-traditional uh, signal. We also have built proprietary models for sentiment. So they read the news articles and they, they tag them as positive or negative. It's not like... Um, a thing you might use by itself, but it's a thing you use as part of a mosaic. You know, you use it to know when to look at something. Yeah, I saw this coming. Thank God I stuck with it because it feels like I could have given up a couple times. Now it feels like the world is, is coming to me rather mm-hmm. than me yelling, I'm over here. So it's fun. I'm sure you've had to like kind of push people and pull. You've kind of had to be on both sides. Uh, what's your favorite movie? My favorite movie? I don't know, Howard. Okay. And then what, if you could drive one person around for the day? Oh, well, that's a driver. That's easy. My, my older son. Oh, really? Why? And I've been doing that well, one, because he's been, 
taking, he's going to take his driver's license test soon. So we have been driving around and that's been, it's just super fun. I don't know if you did that with your son, but I did because my wife was freaking out. It's just super fun, you know, to be first driving them. And then, you know, that you've been driving them around for 17 years. They don't pay any attention. And then, then suddenly <laughs> you're driving, they're yeah. asking you how, you know, when you stop and how you turn and everything. All right. Great answer. Great answer. Well, I appreciate this is fine. If I was going to have a regular guest, I'd have to bug you because the stuff that you see is is the stuff that I like. I get to see it on a small scale within Stocktwits, but uh, it's so overwhelming. I got to think part of the thing is you have to bring everything into the terminal. So that's an overwhelming aspect. And then you've got to help people. Each person has a unique take on what you've ingested into Bloomberg. So that's a hard thing, too. Well, you know, when when I started this job, we had about 10,000 stories a day, and we now have 1.4 million. And so I still think we're in that space where we've added more than people can digest. And we're still in the way of like, how do we find the best content for people? And by the way, that number is just going to keep going up, you know, as we find more and more content that's valuable. Yeah, my favorite quote, uh, I think it's Clay Christensen, but JP Ragswani, I was in Australia, and he's didn't even know him. We were both speaking in a conference and he goes, you know, there's no, this is like 2011. He goes, there's no such thing as information overload, just filter failure. And and nine years later, I'm like, that's as true as it could be. Yeah. So, uh, so you're the man. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Was it okay? Did we do okay? Great. Yeah. I just missed that. uh, We are not going to see you in San Diego this year. Not, no, no Stocktoberfest, no Palooza. So maybe next year. Next year, baby. So uh, congrats on all the uh, continued success at Bloomberg, and we'll have you back soon. Great. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you. Bye. I geeked out. I rarely get to geek out. Do you know, like, it's in my <laughs> yeah, head? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So when I, I used to talk to him, and I was just, I was spitting, trying to get the story out, because he's not going to oh, tell yeah. me the story. I mean, right. I was just like, right. tell me what went on. Those dummies over there. Because he's like a legend. He, probably no one appreciated that he went out there as an employee of Bloomberg and made that deal happen. Exactly. You have to have Twitter. And so in 2009, 2010, 2011, I was just yelling at my computer going, why isn't Jack and Ev, you know, charging for this and you know how much it's worth? And then when Bloomberg got it, I'm like, they didn't charge enough. You know? <laughs> and then I would go, then I was mad because they would never pay stock. Once you had the Twitter data, you don't have to pay stock twins. Right. So it was like, a, I was getting screwed hey. from all angles. But anyways, good guy. Great guy. Right? Yeah. He's been around. So uh, you were listening to Panic with Friends. Today was uh, a fun episode. Not so much. Well, it was about data and signal. And I try and explain to people that make fun of uh, us retail, I call them us individuals, that uh, we're screwed. We're going to get screwed. And no. I think we're seeing this play with Robinhood and StockTwits and the like and eToro and crypto is the information's everywhere coming at us from all angles. No one hoard, no one owns it all. And even though Bloomberg's pulling it all in, no one knows how to use it. Mm-hmm. So it's in the eye of the beholder. Everybody can create their own filters. Uh, and we, we just heard from a, a legend in the business, still fired up to do this, still realizes there's more to ingest and it's only going to get more complicated. The whole point is there's just going to be more alpha slipping out all through the cracks. This is why we're seeing SPACs and IPOs surge again. It's just, it's it's a phenomenon. So uh, this Panic with Friends, you can go to Apple or Spotify or Google, 
search my name, search Panic with Friends. Uh, you can subscribe and then you'll just get an alert when Knut and I throw something up. Uh, thanks, Knut. Thanks, Stock Twits. We'll see everybody soon.